This episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who donated $1 a month through Craft Sanity's Patreon page. Learn more at craftsanity.com. Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Welcome to another Art Prize edition of the podcast. This is episode 143, and my guest is Ryan Spencer-Reed, a Ludington-based photojournalist who spent time embedded with the storied Band of Brothers 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. Ryan was able to spend three months on the deployment with the soldiers, and even though he was sent back early by high-ranking officials, he was not permitted to stay for the entire six-month deployment. He did meet them back on U.S. soil and continue to document these soldiers when they came home. The reality of war is really something that's hard to capture because uh, mainstream media often doesn't have access And even if the journalists have access, there are certain things that for obvious national security and the security of the troops, you can't show every single thing. And so uh, Ryan's collection of photographs and his installation that's part of Art Prize 2014 is called Despite Similarities to Reality, This is a Work of Fiction. And while the title of the installation might throw some people off, the photos are actually real photos that he really took while he was over embedded with the troops and also during their training leading up to it and also at the end of the deployment when they returned home on uh, U.S. soil. And the really cool part about this exhibit is that it's getting people talking about war and the cost of war. It's getting a lot of support. Very excited for Ryan because he made the top 20 for the public vote in Art Prize and the top prize People can vote through the 9th of October, and then on the 10th, they're going to announce the winners, and the top prize is $200,000. Not a bad prize at all, and he's also up for a prize in the installation category. They have a top five in each category, and he's a finalist in the installation category, and that's another $20,000 prize. So he stands to win $220,000 if um, he is selected as the winner of his category, and then the overall winner. And regardless of what happens next, it's pretty obvious that he has accomplished the mission of raising awareness for what soldiers go through. And uh, his piece has been viewed by thousands of people going through the Grand Rapids Art Museum. This is very important work, and I'm very glad that Ryan was kind enough to spend time talking to me when uh, he's in the middle of this exhausting art prize adventure. So congrats to you, Ryan, no matter how it shakes out this week. And if you're in Grand Rapids, I encourage you to go check out this work and all the other work that's um, still out there during Art Prize. You can still do some voting for the finalists, but there's a lot of other great work to take a look at and soak up. All right, so grab a project, a cup of tea, coffee, whatever you fancy, and settle in to hear Ryan's story. The story began kind of from a trip that my wife and I were taking from Florida. And uh, we were coming back home to Michigan and actually... Um, my cousin, who was in the Band of Brothers Battalion, the first of the 506 of the 101st Airborne, actually was down in Fort Polk, Louisiana, uh, working on Joint Readiness Training Center rotation for a different unit, actually. And um, so this was an opportunity for us just to reconnect, buy him lunch, hadn't seen him in a couple months, and he actually invited us back to battalion headquarters there at uh, Fort Polk 
he was able to introduce us to uh, his battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel, and uh, the commanding officer of the Vander Brothers. That guy found out what I did, and I think given the, the nature of his unit and the history, he was really interested in the idea of documenting an entire training, uh, deployment, and reintegration cycle, uh, which would basically be about two years, a little bit shy. I don't actually remember who pitched who on the idea of doing it, but um, you know, it was certainly something that I had already been thinking about, and, and obviously my cousin had been, and we'd even talked about it in deployments past, but this time, given that he was a company commander, he kind of had the, at least the position, the rank, um, you know, and the access to the command group to suggest it. It started very slow. I started coming down to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where their home post was, and just followed them through their various training evolutions. And it, it would start with dry fires, uh, you know, doing very small platoon or squad-sized maneuvers. And actually, it started off at, at that point with just flashlights. Uh, guys at night running around in the dark, almost playing like capture the flag and turning flashlights on and off and yelling, bang, 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 you know. And it was, so I got to see that process over the next roughly a year and a month as they would grow in complexity. Uh, they'd go from squad to platoon, platoon to company, company to battalion-sized elements. They'd go from dry fires to blanks and then live fire exercises. And in the 101st, everything is eagle this and eagle that because they're the screaming eagles. So there's week of the eagles and there's eagle flight one through three and all these various, you know, really, really high intensity training operations. So that's where it began. Are they bringing rookies through this training that takes a year? Really, it's the entire team. So what's interesting is, you know, the rookies, recruits, you know, they're coming through 18, 19 year old men and women. This was one of six units in the, in the whole army that was fielding women as a as kind of a pilot program into infantry combat roles. So that was that was an added kind of interesting aspect to it all. But then with uh, those recruits are you know straight out of basic training are also uh, guys that had had you know five six deployments under their belt, and um, you know those are more platoon sergeants, staff mm-hmm. sergeants, first sergeants, and. Now, does it always take that long from the point a person enlists in the military to deployment? Is there always about a year? Um, I think it depends on the unit, on what they're being asked to do, you know, what their MOS will be, their, you know, their job, their mm-hmm. mission on station or okay. whatever that stands for. But, and, and even by the time I got to them, they had already gone through basic training. So certainly weren't off the bus, you know, from wherever they came from, recruits. Uh, so what year was this? This was March 2012. Okay. And um, what's interesting about JRTC or Joint Readiness Training Center down in Fort Polk, and I think there's a national training center somewhere out in uh, Nevada, is that the unit deploys from their home port, uh, port to that location. So everything they would do to do a, uh, to go on a deployment overseas to Afghanistan or Iraq, they're actually doing to go to Louisiana. So they, they pack connexes the same way they, um, 
you know, they, they pack their A, B, C, and, you know, rucksack bags um, all the same way. And um, all of the gear that is, you know, company, uh, battalion, platoon property, it all gets, you know, it all gets packed and sent the same way that it would otherwise and, and then unpacked down in Louisiana and put into operation. What kind of process did you have to go through? Because obviously you have to get clearance first to get access. We went about this almost ass backwards. So <laughs> we started from the unit level and, and having that personal relationship, you know, we really started from the ground up. And whereas, you know, for a media embed to, to come in and observe military operations, we would traditionally, as a civilian documentarian or, or media personnel, we would come through the DOD and through their website or through a phone number on the website to actually start that process. And then, you know, we go through lots of vetting and paperwork and, um, you know, it's, at some point down the line, then they would prove that. And based on whatever requests I would have, then they would place me with a specific unit. And in this place, or in this instance, we knew exactly what unit we wanted to be with. They wanted me, I wanted to be with them. And, and so that kind of streamlined the process. We were doing a lot together through training, just totally off the books and uh, outside of the kind of the basic regulation so uh, they did assign me a public affairs officer, but it was at the at the brigade level. And really the projects, the extent of the project's visibility almost up into the deployment was was just at the brigade public affairs level. Did anyone get upset that you had worked from the ground up as opposed to the top down like they normally have people do? Not really, but it would play out to a certain extent against... Um, you know, against the the project later on. Uh, once we actually deployed into Afghanistan from the get go, there was a lot of friction at the division public affairs level and and higher. What I think most people don't understand is at the division level, you're you're talking about a general officer who's commanding, you know, that size element, and, and generals are essentially congressionally appointed positions. So the, the level of political aspects at, at that echelon of power are extraordinary. So too comes the risk aversion and a lot of things that come with that. So what did it take to smooth things over? It took fighting. You know, it took my wife and I just just kind of on guard and fighting and, and kind of making deals, uh, you know, through the brigade public affairs officer trying to restructure the project. And it also took letters of recommendation by both the battalion commander and also the brigade commander, uh, which, you know, is a Fulberg colonel, you know, so, so I had letters of recommendations and requests and invitations from Lieutenant Colonel and Fulberg Colonel brigade commander and battalion commander, which certainly helped. But, um, I was essentially guaranteed the entire deployment by the brigade public affairs officer and the, uh, the division level people just weren't having that at all. And so were you able to stay the entire time? I was not. I was actually asked to leave after three months into their deployment. The unit was uh, scheduled to have somewhere around a nine-month deployment. All of that stuff is, you know, is need to know and classified, but that was kind of the, the understanding. They actually ended up only staying six months and sort of ramping up their timelines uh, due to a number of 
circumstances, some known to me and some not. And same thing with being asked to leave. I mean, there was never any explanation. And ultimately, at the time that I was there, most journalists, most embeds were getting anywhere from three days to a week and a half or two weeks tops actually in country. So although it it was a huge crushing blow to me, the project, and the fact that we were a year and a month in training and three months into deployment, trying to carry out a project that was shared and mutually agreed to at the brigade level and, and myself, it was still a huge win for what we were trying to do and, and ultimately get as much access for as long as possible. What was that like just on your own family to make that kind of commitment to a project like this personally? What did that involve for you? It involved an enormous amount of stress in the area of finances. That's a huge stress around this particular project. And also just the obviously the time consideration was a big concern. We're a very strong couple. We try to tackle huge ambitious projects, whether it's renovating a 125-year-old Odd Fellows Temple up in Ludington, Michigan, uh, which we've done uh, <laughs> together and, and actually started that before we were married, actually got married in the building uh, oh, with, wow. with our family. We uh, surprised them all on New Year's Eve and, uh, they, you know, they didn't even know who we were thinking about it. Uh, oh, so wait, your wedding was on New Year's Eve as a surprise? To yes. Them? A surprise yeah, the, wedding? The wow. family was, was all coming in and my cousin, Ted, um, in the military, uh, you know, was, was home on leave. And I just kind of said, hey, what do you think about this? And she was like, you know, I love you, but I got to make sure that my best friend can make it from Portland. So we made the call and it worked. <laughs> awesome. But um, yeah, it was great. I think outside the box, we do some out there projects, but you know, and and really, I had kind of hoped from the onset that we would do this together. Uh, I was really looking forward to sharing that with her, and it was pretty much at the request of of my cousin and a number of other people involved on the military side of things, looking at how many of our young women service uh, personnel are actually sexually assaulted by their own mm-hmm. so, on the deployment. That that was one large determining factor and Erica, my wife, not actually going on the deployment. She did accompany me on a number of the training iterations and, you know, it was always a a huge value to the process in that and me. So for us to be separated for that long, that was the longest period of time. and, And we had geared up for nine months. That was the longest period of time that we had spent apart and, and still have in our marriage. And just the the level of risk. I mean, I think we both felt that this was one of the most highly trained conventional military assets our government has outside of Navy SEALs and Rangers and Delta Force and, you know, all the special ops teams. I think ultimately Erica felt like she knew that I was pretty dead set on doing this project and that it would be pretty detrimental to not take the opportunity and so how long had you guys been married when you took this project on? Just a little over two years. And is she a photographer as well? She's not. She's got mad skills with a camera, though. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, along with everything else, I, I call her my Swiss Army wife. Uh, <laughs> in the exhibition, you'll see uh, anything three-dimensional in the space at the Grand Rapids Art Museum that isn't a wall she built. Uh, so the, the light. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty light, impressive. Yeah. The light boxes, the the wall sections that are kind of reminiscent of blast walls or 
MRAP vehicles that we would travel in. Uh, all those things were kind of channeled through her into existence just with, with her own skill sets. Uh, she has a degree in sculpture and uh, graphic design from Michigan State University. So she's knocked it out of the park before where these things are concerned. And this just happens to be you know, a great opportunity for us to collaborate. I know you've spent a lot of time traveling the world and documenting, taking us to places as viewers that we wouldn't go on our own. Did you meet her during your travels or did you meet your wife here back at home in between projects? Actually at home between projects. I live in Ludington, Michigan and it's kind of a, a tourist destination and um, my wife's father remarried a lady whose family had a cottage right in Lincoln uh, on the lake and we actually met on the beach when we were I want to say 11 and 12 years old respectively and hung out for a little bit um, every so often throughout throughout the years but for the most part hadn't seen each other since we were kids and got kind of reintroduced after college and I had already come back from South Sudan and Darfur and had been touring that work around the country for a little bit and I actually think my uncle and cousin up in Ludington had displayed in their gallery the uh, the Sudan exhibition and her family kind of got to know me in that way as an adult and doing uh, my work vocationally. And So you grew up right in Ludington or was that uh, a vacation spot for you? My parents were separated and my father's family uh, was based out of Ludington and had always lived there. But my um, my mom and I moved around quite a bit to different parts of the country. So we lived in Phoenix, Arizona, Erie, Pennsylvania, and all over the northern uh, Chicago land suburbs. And and uh, so I got to school year with my mom and summers with my dad. And do you think that moving around as a kid, did that make it more of a natural choice for you to, to travel so much as an adult and a journalist? I think it did. And it was always the new kid. And I was almost always coming in like partway through the school year. So for me to be able to kind of size up a, a room or an environment or a dynamic that was already in place before, you know, I was present there, you know, that was a skill set that got ingrained in pretty early. You know, you you come to the school, new kid, and everybody's looking at you curious. And, you know, in a, in a way, you just figure out who the players are. Ultimately, I think I always found myself finding friendships and in all kind of sectors, anyone who would take me. I think that skill set really has been um, pretty important to the work that I do. I don't know if there's anything else about your childhood that you'd like to share. I mean, did you always want to be a photographer? No, no, I didn't. I I wanted to pretty much always be a doctor and went to school pre-med physics major. And Where did you go? I went to Kelvin right here in Grand Rapids and loved science, loved, loved, loved physics. It just... um, Ended up, uh, I think once I got to college, like a lot of people, I, I learned a, a lot more about the real inner workings of what I had sort of idealized as, as a young kid. And you know, I think I realized that I didn't know enough about it. And I think that caused me to question some of my motivations and felt that, you know, maybe I was, I was definitely doing it for a lot of the right reasons, but you know, if I didn't know some of these things about healthcare in America, what have you, you know, HMO this and whatever that, you know, it was, it, it kind of caused me to question my true motivations. And, and so for a minute, I just felt a little bit 
rudderless uh, without a compass. And I had three uncles growing up that were professional photographers. So I was always around cameras and never really had much curiosity about it up until my uncle Todd, my dad's brother, started photographing for his first landscape book. And he had been a photojournalist for the Ludington Daily News, also had been a chief in the Coast Guard Reserve and taught photography classes and things. So it was kind of neat to, you know, to get to see that aspect of, you know, his passion. I think for me, it became a hobby. You know, I didn't really see it vocationally until I actually got back to college and had some professors encouraging me to look at the way that photography was actually working in the world from more of a social engagement standpoint. And I started looking at the way that imagery coming out of Vietnam changed the collective conscience of a nation and ultimately slowed that war to a stop, looked at, uh, you know, the work, work like James Noctway um, out of Time magazine and, you know, people, Sebastio Salgado, people like that really inspired me. And even going back several generations to Eugene Smith and Henri Cartier-Bresson, very, very inspirational work. And I began to get really fascinated about the world for the first time, having not really traveled outside my home country up until college. It was just a really interesting way to kind of learn about history and learn about other parts of the world. And, and I just felt the urge to get involved in that. So at what point did you decide that you really were not going to see out the pre-med and kind of the camera kind of came into focus? Probably end of sophomore year, early junior year. I left college pretty much firmly thinking that magazine work would be the world in which I'd live. And, you know, bombing around the world on a Time Magazine expense uh, account sounded kind of cool. <laughs> um, little did I know that's actually not how it works anymore. And, you know, the funding for these kinds of things just don't really exist. When did you graduate from Kelvin? Uh, 2002. And I think I was stringing for the Grand Rapids Press most of that year. I had the opportunity to go to Japan and also to South Africa during college. And and I think that experience in South Africa, post-apartheid challenges was the parameters of of our independence study there. And it was extraordinary. So it really gave me, I think, a, a bug for Africa and for traveling and just kind of looking at the, at the globe. You know, I really wanted to focus on critical social issues and getting back to Africa really made a lot of sense. What is it that compels you to, to stop the easy life we have here and go tell these challenging stories that you know, other people aren't paying attention to? I guess I feel like in, in my world, there's a lot of people paying attention to them. And I, I think where the real shortcoming lies in, is in the actual media infrastructure in and of itself and to actually get the work out. You know, so for example, I spent about two years in and out of Detroit with my wife digging around in these old buildings and, you know, just kind of fascinated by scale of it and kind of using Detroit as the canary in the coal mine to illustrate the changes in the American landscape, both economically and politically and and socially. It was, it was kind of low hanging fruit. And it was something that a lot of photographers had, had been doing for decades before me, even given that 
Detroit's bust really started probably in the sixties and, and it, it never really turned around, uh, up until very, very recently, even after the work that we had done in there. So I guess I don't feel like I'm having very many original thoughts. I think of it like, you know, if you want to go into an old house and make a picture of the attic, you know, just this beautiful space that's been pristine and untouched for, let's say, decades, and you open the door, and unfortunately, the wind kicks up when you open the door, and all the dust gets scattered around, and, you know, papers may move around or whatever, and it's it's like, for you to get that photograph that was in your head, the pristine sort of image that, that was there before you screwed it up, you have to wait. You have to wait for the dust to settle and, and go back. And there's no way around it. It just takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of building rapport with the people involved in these various you know, experiences that, that I've had and various projects I've tried to work on. It just, there's no compensation for time in. So you know, much like the guys with Restrepo, I think what's so powerful about their work is the amount of time that they spent and focused you know, laser focused on, on one small unit. I mean, I was essentially doing the same thing. It was just a different time in the war. I had what I felt to be unique and extraordinary access to this project in Afghanistan on two levels. One, I had a company commander cousin, like a brother in the unit. And, um, so a lot of the insights I was able to, to gain were just, you know, the late night conversations about what I had seen that day and, you know, getting that insight certainly filtered because he had a job to do and he was, he was doing that first, you know, still kind of shepherding me through the process. And given also that this was the band of brothers battalion, I think that was also pretty special from a standpoint of looking at some of the key investigation routes that I wanted to take in kind of my own reasons for having gone to war in the past and in Sudan, uh, looking at myself coming from a military family, you know, our grandfather, my cousin and I's grandfather flew a B-24 in World War II. My father served in a top secret uh, crypto code copying unit in uh, an Air Force unit in Vietnam. And Tad, my cousin's father, uh, was actually reservist of the year one year in the Coast Guard. So we come from this sort of, I don't know, so probably for many somewhat average, but somewhat illustrious to us kind of military family. And and while it was never boasted about, it was always present. And um, so I think keying into the fact that we are still very much a savage society, despite the fact that you know, wonderful things can happen like our prize. And we seem to be a civil people here at home. I think that's because we're technologically so advanced that only 1% of the population has to do the heavy lifting in the prosecution of our wars for us. And yet I think uh, as males in this society, to a certain extent, we still measure ourselves up against our time spent in violent conflict. And, And that was something that I think played in in a very subconscious level to my decision to going into South Sudan initially and going into Darfur after the fact and kind of continuing to sort of push that envelope and how far can I take this and am I getting um, respected for, you know, for doing this work in any way, shape or form. And I'm sure to a certain extent it must play in to, to the decision making for many of our 
young servicemen and women, um, you know, picking up the call to arms and, and serving their country. Since others in your family had gone before you into a military role, it was something that people kind of expected that you would pursue as well, or was that just not really discussed? There was some discussion um, about it, and and I actually remember in high school, probably my junior year, my, my father saying, you know, you could consider college, you could also consider you know, an academy. Why don't we check out the Air Force Academy or, and why don't we go down to our elected representative's office and see if he or she would, would write a letter of recommendation for you to see if it's even an option for you to consider. And, you know, my dad was even just recently involved in bringing uh, 80% scale um, replica of the Vietnam Memorial Wall to our hometown in Ludington along with a massive committee of really committed people to the idea of facilitating that conversation at the community level. And so, I don't know, I think, I think it was always there behind the scenes. It was never insisted upon, obviously. And, and I don't think it was for my cousin Tad either. I mean, he was a third grade teacher had um, a master's degree in educational technology, was a fabulous teacher. And on 9-11, he made the decision that he was going to make a change in his life and actually get down to putting in our, our family's um, service in this generation uh, firmly on his shoulders. And what are you calling your collections of, of photos that are available for people to purchase during Art Prize? We just kind of simplified it to newsprint magazines. I mean, the the literary sort of background is you would call them zines, you know, but they basically just self-published newsprint magazines. And they're kind of a print pack, 60 prints spread across four volumes, uh, similar to the way that the exhibition lays out. Part of the, what appealed to you about this and what I gathered from reading this is that you were intrigued to tell a story about what is actually happening overseas with military deployments as opposed to what the American public is, kind of the media we're consuming and the version of, of events that we're getting uh, isn't always a- exactly what's happening over over there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I just think that's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be some insidious lying on behalf of our, our military or lying on behalf of the, uh, the media or, you know, or, or bending the truth or anything like that. I just think to a certain extent, when you only have 1% of your population prosecuting your wars for you, you will have fewer and fewer people who understand the true cost of war and um, at the end of the day, war is, is a very ugly, you know, very, very horrible thing. And it, it's usually reserved as a last resort. And I think in recent years, we've seen almost this coming to pass of what Eisenhower spoke about with the uh, military industrial complex. And, um, you know, for some reason, we almost seem to be in this state of, of perpetual enduring and uh, enduring war. Uh, even, the, even the call sign or the name of, of this war is Operation Enduring Freedom. It is the longest running war of our young nation's history. Um, and to, to a certain extent, I think people are still very confused about why we were there in the first place, uh, what we're doing over there now. I think many people go about their daily lives forgetting or even not realizing that we're, we, we still have a war happening and, and 
and occurring in our name. I won't name names, but I had one um, person, one soldier that I had maintained contact with, just Facebook friends, and uh, he had posted, not this past September 11th, but the one prior, right after I had gotten home um, from the deployment, having, having been asked to leave, and he he had said, um, you know, on this anniversary of September 11, I am just now finding out that the Pentagon was also hit that day. And this is a soldier in Afghanistan who uh, is there because of the events of that day and, and yet just didn't, didn't have a really true telling of or firm handle on on the history of that day. So wow. now keep keep in mind he was probably seven. Yeah, he was a kid, seven yeah. years old, and yeah. But but that harkens to the fact that uh, um, that that he's been uh, essentially growing up his his entire adolescence and, and young maybe late childhood, knowing war, knowing a society at war. The, the other thing that really intrigued me was something that I think Sebastian Unger touches on that one of my favorite um, books of all time is uh, by Chris Hedges called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. And he touches on this a lot and just dealing with the psychology of being in a war zone and how that actually alters a person um, really forever, having, having experienced it once or for a certain amount of time. And, you know, that, that was definitely something that I, that I wanted to dig in to my own past and, and kind of pick away at some of the, um, the, you know, the loose, uh, fibers around, uh, around the edges and, and something that I was curious about with my, with my cousin and some of his colleagues. How many men and women were you with? The plane was full from that shot I saw on the... Yeah, and that was actually only a partial group of of the overall even just battalion so the unit deployed as a brigade combat team and brigades are made up of battalions battalions are made up of companies companies made up of platoons platoons Mm -hmm. made up of squads so the battalion sized element is kind of ebbed and flowed grew and over the course of the training but on average i would say we're around 750 men and women in that in that unit and that that was really what i was interested in focusing on was was that size group okay and that's a big that's a pretty big group how many of those were women i don't know the exact number and again that was also something that changed throughout uh you know the the training and deployment cycle but i would say we were we were right around probably 15 to 17 wow that's not very many no that would make me really nervous to be one of those 15 to 17. Um, yes. Okay. And alas, your wife's decision to not, and you, you guys deciding not to have her go. Neither of us want to be in a situation where we're always looking over each other's shoulder, trying to focus on the well-being of the other and, and not actually getting our job done. So, you know, I think the question became, you know, is, is the pairing – going to yield you know a factor that's that's greater than the sum of the parts or is it lesser um you know and and is it worth the risk ultimately i meant to get this to a little bit sooner and get to this part but i'm I'm interested in your gear what did you bring what kind of gear did you bring to shoot this project 
I always try to maintain as minimal uh, a footprint as, as I possibly can, especially in a situation like this. Um, I mean, you could go hog wild and never stop with the kind of gear, but I'm oh, yeah. one person. I have to be responsible for my own gear. And um, so I, I use, even back here at home and have pretty much since I got back from Sudan, uh, Leica rangefinders. And I could only, at the time, I could only basically trade in all my Nikon digital stuff for old used Leica gear from like the 60s, 50s, and 70s. And so I had two bodies and two lenses. and They were all film, and I committed to going back to film uh, for all the stuff on America and Detroit. And But um, with this project, I, I really felt the urge to shoot and catalog it digitally. And uh, the technology had become you know great enough that uh, I was able to feel very confident in that decision. And so I, I did a Kickstarter campaign, had a lot of support in that. And the newsprint magazines um, will be going out to all our Kickstarter right after our prize here, as well as a couple other rewards. But one of the rewards was actually one of the cameras that I was purchasing with the Kickstarter campaign. So it was a Leica M digital body. Um, I just managed to be able to use all my existing lenses. And it was a pretty seamless transition. They could do video as well, but not that well. And it was something I wanted to consider or have the option to, to doing video in addition to stills, but really you know, my, my main focus and what I ended up gravitating to was stills. I also carried portable um, audio equipment and uh, captured a lot of natural sound. So in the aggregate, I think over the, the two and a half years spending on the project, I, I want to say we were uh, certainly over 50,000 frames. Wow. I, I always cringe at that because I'm such an idiot with a digital camera in my hand and have no, uh, you know, almost no discipline. Whereas film, I feel, puts me in a totally different headspace. And oh, yeah. You spend it wisely when it's film. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> digital, everyone's kind of like just firing away with shot yeah. after shot. And, and then with the audio, I think we were probably a couple hundred hours of natural sound and interviews and briefings and all kinds of things so. so do you have plans to do more with this project use all the audio stuff and everything else that you i imagine you probably have more than what you used for art prized i mean yeah, a significant um, amount more <laughs> enormous amount yeah i i could use some help with that i've actually had some offers to go through some of the audio and i and i may um, pursue those options I feel pretty good about the edit. I focus much more heavily on the stills and the visual narrative and kind of trying to boil it down, reduce it to its essential parts and, and its required um, being. And part of it, the biggest process in that, um, in addition to just what a lot of people in the editing world call killing your darlings. Oh yeah. Um, I use that with my students. Yep. Yeah. Is, um, is figuring out what I actually had versus what I had hoped to get. Um, so I didn't get the nine month deployment. They were actually only there for six. So even if I got the whole thing, you know, I'd have significantly less time than I originally thought. And, and just, um, you know, just, just coming to terms and, and uh, with you know with what I actually had versus versus what I had pictured in my head, and so I think I feel really good about the way the exhibit has come together and the message that 
you know, that it's bringing. People ask about, you know, do I have graphic pictures and things that I'm not showing? And um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that people aren't seeing. And ultimately, I think the title um, referring to, you know, the fact that this may be a work of fiction is in part a disclaimer. It's, uh, you know, of my own work in the sense that, you know, I, it's heavily edited by the time it, it is offered up to the public for consumption. Um, you know, public affairs officer told me what my left limits are, what my right limits are, and everything else outside of that is off limits. And you know, just like I do all media. And, you, you know, you try to toe that line. It's kind of a quid pro quo relationship. And, you, you know, there's a lot less at stake for me as an individual than a major news network. But um, I can guarantee you that line is towed because nobody wants to be the only network not covering a war. Right. Did anyone tell you, like, when a situation would go down, um, did anybody, was someone assigned to you to watch what you were doing and watch what you were photographing? Traditionally, that would be the case. And, and the, these would be the media that fly in and fly out all in three days or a couple of weeks. And given that I had sort of not only built rapport with the 750, 800 or so soldiers in the battalion, but also with the brigade level public affairs, you know, I was able to kind of strike out on my own and build some trust with that relationship. And I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like we, we navigated it pretty well, other than the colossal screw up of, you know, of my having to go home early. Uh, which was not only, I think, a detriment to my project, but it's their project too. You know, I think they would have st stood to benefit from having this unit documented to its fullest. But you know, ultimately, somebody I think made the made the calculation that the risk just wasn't worth the reward. And uh, you know, they, had, they were probably always afraid of the next Rolling Stone article. So, did they think you were just too close to people that something would come out that they didn't want to come out, or? I'm sure that's always a fear. You know, I think public affairs especially is, has, has proven to me to be an area of the military that's extremely risk averse, you know, kind of afraid of things going sideways on them and not having the utmost control. But, but I, I do think, you know, that positions them in a way that unfortunately just creates enemies in, in, in the press. And probably a lot of the bad press they get is just out of spite. I really feel that I've conducted myself more professionally than that on, on all levels. And, and I, and I stand behind every, every picture, every caption in, in that exhibition. I think by and large, you probably don't want to piss off the people that have the microphone. Yeah, that is never a good idea. Well, the thing is public affairs and public relations, even in civilian settings, it doesn't even have to be a war situation. It's, it's really interesting how that dynamic can just become amplified, though, when there are lives at stake and national security and all that kind of stuff. Was there an impetus that where it just kind of came to a head and people were like, all right, you're going home? Or was this kind of slowly building where things were going south? It is slowly built. And really, it started from the onset. Uh, I, was, I was the only media in Regional Command East during what the Army refers to as RIPTOA period, which is uh, acronym for Relief in Place Transfer of Authority, and this was Third Brigade ripping out with Fourth, and uh, this unit, uh, the battalion I was with, was coming in under Fourth Brigade. It was also at the time that the 101st Airborne took command and ownership of the battle space RC East or Regional Command East, and uh, 
so it was, it, you know, it was a tense time. It was a heavy time for, for everybody kind of involved. And the reason that no other media is in, in that battle space at that time is Riptoa periods are media blackout, almost no exceptions. So part of the reason that is, is the enemy knows when these Riptoa periods take place. And, uh, you know, they try to push and pull and tug at cracks and, you know, in the walls and, and try to, you know, take advantage of any opportunities to find soft targets. What's happening is a lot of third brigade in this case was packing up, trying to at the same time transfer any and all legacy data to fourth brigade. And this happens every rotation of, you know, of every single deployment. So there's a lot of opportunities in in there. And certainly we don't want our men and women on uh, 15 or even 12 month deployments, uh, nine you know, seems to be a, a good max ceiling there. So they can't be there the entire time. So that legacy data has to be transferred. And, and that can be as simple as, you know, this is usually the time of day we get hit or from this direction, or, you know, you should set your mortars up on these asthmas, you know, so there's lots of, lots of information being transferred. And it's also a time when um, it's very intense and they want to kind of get things set up and not look like they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off, not knowing what they're doing, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, not exactly a, a fair portrait of what's happening, but it, but it does look very chaotic. So when you guys arrive, remind me where you touched down and are you even allowed to say, I mean, how much can you say about can We can, talk about those things now certainly couldn't do it then can't pull a Geraldo. Um, right. yeah i don't do that say, <laughs> he's not exactly a good role model for any of us <laughs> right yeah i mean you know i certainly couldn't tell you if this interview was was real time going in like hey we just landed oh yeah of course from not. i would Germany know better than to, to uh, that. <laughs> you know to um kabul and you know now we're we're going wherever but yeah basically we we flew straight out of fort campbell kentucky went through um some some place in germany and then some place in kyrgyzstan and then from there um got on the military transport to bagram air force base and and then from there everybody kind of went to their own destination through various bases that don't exist anymore uh, salerno was one and then Gardez or Fab Good was one. And these were bases that these units actually closed down on the way out of their deployment when I was there. So they were kind of shutting things down. Yeah, and it was a very interesting time, I think, to be there because for essentially 12 years, we were pumping all kinds of gear and stuff into that country and at a massive rate. And, you know, the timelines were dictating that all that stuff had to be back out of there in just a couple of years. And so we'll, we'll see how that actually takes place. And, and at the same time, you know, the military is trying to stand up and support and train as much as possible the Afghani security forces. And it was kind of explained to me by a lieutenant colonel that if you think about a person in that, in that man's command position or, or um, rank, you know, a lieutenant colonel in the army probably has 18, 19 years in, you know, in the military and a person above him, a full bird colonel probably has mid to early twenties. And um, yet, you know, we're trying to stand up and allow them to be self-sufficient, a military force that we've really only been training for uh, six, seven years. Right. And that's going to be um, hard to accomplish that. 
It, it will be. Yeah, it will be hard for them to stand on their own. And, and it's, so it's a tall order on, on the Afghani partners as well. And we'll just have to see what happens. And so for you, when you guys got set up, you all touched down. It sounds like everyone was go- going from the same base. You know, you, you land and then everyone disperses. Did you, how did you, how was it determined who you would go with? Did you stay with your cousin or did you go somewhere else? Well, my cousin was company commander through training of their heavy sort of mechanized unit, uh, dealer company. And then he was promoted to headquarters and headquarters company commander uh, for the deployment. Basically, you know, I followed the battalion command, which was also my cousin's uh, unit going with battalion uh, as the battalion headquarters company. Okay. Uh, so I started there. Uh, we went to Fab Good and and right out of the city of Gardez in Pactia province. From there, uh, spent roughly a month kind of getting the lay of the land, going out on missions with uh, both um, headquarters company as well as uh, Bravo or uh, Baker Company, which was also based out of Fab Good. And then uh, I, there, was, um, there was a death, uh, a KIA of two soldiers in Able Company, and I just felt the need to get the get to them as quickly as I possibly could, and so after that point, it was clear to me that that's that was kind of where the story was, in in part because they had endured uh, such a you know tragic event, and um, ultimately that they just really seemed like really great people. And how soon was that? They had they lost two soldiers, and how how soon was that after you arrived? It was uh, just over a month. And they had just arrived at the same time? Yeah, everybody came in pretty much the same time. Okay. And had you had any contact with any of those people directly before? Did you know anyone in that in that company? I did, yeah. Um, yeah and uh, knew one of the men who was killed uh, in, that, in that initial. Uh, it was a motorcycle uh, V-bid, uh, vehicle-borne ID. Uh, the other gentleman, the platoon leader, was a person that came in uh, actually from a different unit as a replacement to uh, the platoon leader that was medboarded for the deployment. So he was replaced and was somebody that I had not met actually through training. Most, even his guys hadn't met him. So he flew straight into country and was asked to pretty much pick up where this other leader uh, left off. So talk about the new kid in the class. That, oh, that wow. Yeah. And a very difficult, uh, assignment. It was very sad. He was, uh, he was very well respected early on by, by his peers. And, and you could just see the, you know, the way that that unit was just crushed. How, how old were these men that were killed? Uh, early, very early twenties, both of them, probably, uh, 21 and 22 respectively. So you were only about a couple of years younger than you are now. Yes. Okay. But you probably had a decade on a lot of the people coming in as far as Yeah, or more. Yeah, the troops coming in. Okay. So that dynamic probably made this, everything got probably seriously real for everybody after something like this happens because the vulnerability is exposed, even though everyone knows going in intellectually, you know, it's a possibility. So how did that affect your story since you knew one of these people? And I mean, what did it... What did that do for you just psychologically as you're in this, you've committed to this? Where do you go from there after things start getting intense? Uh, you just, you go in into it. You just keep 
going further in. And, um, you know, for me, that was inside the minds of these men as much as they'd let me. And it was a very um, tender and, you know, very intimate time for, for them to grieve for the loss uh, of, of their brothers. And, um, but, but I just, it was something about the way that they were honoring these people and, and almost taking a moment of silence for, you know, for their own deployment in recognition of these guys that was so interesting and, and so intriguing. And yes, it, it was all of a sudden real for uh, the vast majority of, of people who had not been on deployment before. And for those who had been on deployments before, it was a reminder of, mm-hmm. of how real things can get. And so there was a, you know, a bit of paranoia, um, a bit of just, just kind of struggling to, to regain their center. Um, you know, it was a, it was a kind of a team cut off at the knees for a minute. Um, and really the, you know, the battalion command was essentially asking that, you know, you know, grieve for a day and, and get back on your horse and we got a job to do. And that's, you know, that's the truth as well. So I think they, they really felt tugged, uh, in a lot of directions, but, um, we're pretty gun shy after that. So just, just really after that, things got very, it was almost like slow motion. Uh, I spent, I just, I camped out. I just went to that combat outpost, hung out with AWO company and, you know, just tried to figure this out with them as best I could, um, try to understand what they were going through and, you know, there's a lot of photographs there that are in that time period or shortly thereafter that war just seemed very serene and very peaceful in, in kind of an odd way. But it was all in the wake of, of this terrible tragedy. And it wouldn't be the last. There were three more that, that were killed on the, uh, throughout the duration of the deployment uh, before I was sent home. Was it the same company or a different company? There was one more in that company. And was this a person that you knew again? Yeah. So the first time it was a leader when the motorcycle came in, it was the same. Two, they same, were together? Same platoon. Okay. And it was the same event that led to the death of two soldiers? It was. And then one more in that company. Was it a similar type of event? What happened for the third person? It was a similar kind of event in that it was an ambush. I had actually gone back to battalion command uh, after virtually a month with that unit, uh, with, with ABLE company. And so going back to battalion command, actually because there was a death in uh, Baker company, I had not been present for, uh, for that, but you know, I, I kind of became the official, unofficial battalion photographer. And it was pretty important to the lieutenant colonel that that these ceremonies be covered, even though that was not my primary interest or, you know, I just, I felt like I owed it to them having done so much to get me over there that, you know, that if this was important to them, that, that it should be important to me. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately I, I wanted to pay my respects as well. So the company commander for Able Company and myself flew back to battalion headquarters and I stayed for another couple days there and in the process uh, this first platoon of able company went back out on a mission back at champ connie uh, out of champ connie uh where they were based meanwhile i was still 
back at Fabgood and uh, just outside of Gardez and Sonny Zimmerman was killed by a pretty much point-blank recoilless rifle round that almost fired from a culvert position as the convoy rolled by. So he was killed virtually instantly, but Sonny was phenomenal human being, really great soldier. He was a gunnery uh, sergeant, so a squad squad leader. Just uh, how, you know, I'll never forget his face. He was just always smiling. He was the kind of guy that when he smiled, you know, his whole face would squint up and just all, all smile. So uh, I remember I, I was actually in his truck for every mission that we would go out on. And I remember the first mission he had his guys filling the truck full of Dr. Pepper. He loved Dr. Pepper. And they were actually taking water out of the vehicle to fit more Dr. Pepper in it. Oh, my it. gosh. I'm not a – ever since high school soccer, I'm not a, I'm not a soda pop guy. So um, I was kind of thinking, hey, guys. Um, you might want more water. <laughs> you might need more water. I think this is like a three-day mission or something. And, you know, they're like, ah, we'll be fine. So this is just kind of a cowboy type guy and really – Liked him a lot. That had to be a bit jarring, not only because you knew him, but because you also rode with him. It was. Yeah, it was. I mean, he was just a, he was a good man. You know, he, uh, he took care of me, made sure that, you know, that I was uh, covered. And um, so I, I always appreciated that. He's actually 25 years old. So, you know, as a, as a 25 year old, to uh, take all that responsibility on and just it just always was a point of admiration right because the thing is when they're bringing a journalist around um you're not packing heat so you're not both that and and then the uniform you know i i had to i couldn't wear what they wear it's did you have something that labeled you as press uh i didn't but i i also at the same time i could not look like them so and all, both of those things, uh, being armed uh, as, a, as a journalist or as a civilian, you become a combatant. You know, when these guys roll out with a journalist in the back of their vehicle, you know, you're taking up a rifle seat. You're not going to back him up any kind of way. If he comes under fire, you don't have anything to help him. You know, yeah. It changes all the calculations. So what do you make of the situation and what's happened to some of your colleagues in, just in the field of journalism? Over the last probably a couple of decades, it's become increasingly more difficult to operate as a journalist in the world. And it's not just because of the onset of the, you know, the new modern fanatical terrorism threat or anything like that. I think it's all, it's largely because of the technology and because of the voice that journalists, uh, whether indigenous uh, or not have um, afforded to them by the virtue of uh, social media and technology uh, on the whole. Um, you know, Danny Pearl um, and pretty much everyone after, I think, could kind of be lumped into this consideration, you know, where the factors are, are different and much more real. And I think um, combatants on, on both sides see the press often as enemies of the state or enemies of their end game and much less how they used to see press as a vehicle to get their, their voice out. And mm -hmm. 
And I think that's probably always been the perspective of, you know, the main powers involved in war, um, because, you know, you've always had the microphone as the empire or as the superpower, and you've always had the the, uh, the megaphone, as it were, you know, the ability to, to speak to your people in mass. But generally, those more subversive elements, the regime changing elements, the rebels have, have needed and relied on the press to get their message out. So much in the same way that the press had become more of a threat because of the technology and the ability to have a whisper travel around the world in a heartbeat, uh, you know, the, the rebels themselves, um, you know, the terrorists themselves, the regime change elements and the subversives also have access to that same technology. And it almost makes irrelevant to a certain extent the, the, the very media that, you know, is curiously trying to find out who these people are, what they're uh, about and what they're doing. So really, to a certain extent, that calculation could be looked at as, well, you know, killing a Westerner, a member of the press, um, almost is uh, irrelevant. But killing a journalist is is almost making more inroads to the end game that they're after than, um, you know, than allowing them to come in and have access and go back and report. How has your view changed? I mean, you probably left with some thoughts and perspectives on war in general, and then you spent time witnessing it, you know, firsthand. How did this change you? More than anything, I feel like I can hold my head a little bit higher when I'm thanking uh, a member of our armed services and thanking them for their service, ultimately, because this whole project was about me not knowing what my cousin's life was like as a soldier and just feeling like that just wasn't acceptable given how close we were growing up. It was on me. To, he's a busy guy. You know, it was on me to follow up and have, you know, and pursue conversations about that stuff. And it wasn't that I was disinterested. It was just, I'm, I was busy and that, that wasn't a good enough excuse. So feeling like I have a little bit more of an understanding of what uh, what are young men and women who do the heavy lifting uh, as we ask them to prosecute wars in our name, uh, what they, what they do, um, uh, on a day-to-day basis is just, that's been a phenomenal experience. Um, and I think I've come away with it with a sincere hope that the wars that we would ask them to prosecute be as honorable as the service we expect from them. And I, and I think that's something that is is a bit in question for me still today, and is probably in question for the majority of the electorate. But um, I, I just think that I would hope that as a society, given that we've had this luxury of of ninety nine percent of us not having to to do that heavy lifting, that we at least take on some of the responsibility of asking the tough questions about the honorability of you know, the conflicts that we're fighting and get savvy about the fact that we're, you know, operating in 120 or so countries around the world and, you know, and, and with unmanned aerial surveillance and, and and it's also come home, right here at home. I think we have to ask serious questions about the extent to which we are not living up to the responsibility of asking young men and women to go do that heavy lifting for us and then come home to what? What are we offering them when they get home? Are we, are we as welcoming as we could be 
are we doing everything we can to not only just reintegrate them into society, but really take advantage of the huge opportunity presented to us by uh, the fact that we've funded their training to the nth degree. They're some of the best trained, some of the brightest uh, young minds we have. They are different. They're forever different having gone and seen and been asked to do what we've asked them to do. But uh, it doesn't mean that they're expendable by any means. And it certainly doesn't mean that we can't, uh, I think, do a better job of that reintegration process. Did you have to go through a reintegration process yourself? I didn't really have that opportunity. Um, I, I actually just came home, got dumped off in Indianapolis. My wife drove down and picked me up and uh, that was it. Um, I It was a tough time because I was leaving not only a family member and, you know, very close family member at that in harm's way, but I was now leaving 700 or so friends, um, you know, to a certain extent, at least acquaintances in harm's way. That was tough because I'm, I'm the kind of person that the more information I have, the more comfortable I'm going to be about a certain thing because I like assessing the risks and the pros and cons and and in that risk assessment, figuring out ways to box risks or at least understand that process as well. And being now on the outside, not having classified channels of communication that I could, you know, that I could at least glean some level of inform- secondhand information from. It was very maddening, to say the least, that, you know, I knew all of the ri- not all of the risks by any means, but I knew many of the risks in play when I left. Just having that kind of be cut off, it's like reading a book and getting three quarters of the way through it and you're almost to the to the climax in that plot and then losing it. <laughs> I believe there's one image that I remember that was of some soldiers in the rain and they're about to go in and greet family when they're coming back. Were you there when they came home? I was, yeah, and that was, that was the best day of the deployment for sure, was seeing them come back. You know, I'd I'd heard of the the final gentleman's death and um, was just glad to know that they were in route home, you know, and, and safe. And I was really looking forward to just catching up and covering, picking up, I guess, where where we left off with with the storytelling too. And so I did get to stay through their eight day kind of debriefing and some of their reintegration or retrograde process over the next couple months and then um, got to attend the brigade ball. I'm sorry. It was a big deal because the brigade was one of 10 army combat brigades that was going away, being decommissioned. So the 4th Brigade combat team of 101st Airborne doesn't exist anymore, even though that's the unit that I that was in country this time last year. How did you finance this project? I know you said you did a Kickstarter for some of your camera gear. But did you also have included in your Kickstarter funding for just to kind of sustain yourself throughout this time that you'd be dedicating to the project? Unfortunately, the Kickstarter campaign probably only covered roughly half of the the expenses up to the point of the deployment. So we were we were probably looking at about thirty three thousand dollars up to the deployment, um, and that just included camera gear, any additional audio gear, um, 
the transportation costs, uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana twice, um, you know, Fort Campbell often, um, from Michigan, uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And, um, I also the gear that was required by NATO and by the army for me. So, you know, uh, plate carrier, uh, vest, you know, helmets, gloves, boots. Fortunately, I got a lot of secondhand stuff, um, you know, that, that, um, you know, guys weren't able to use themselves. So I was able to cover some of the, some of that in, in that way. But, and then by the time, you know, the deployment hit, it was clear there wasn't going to be any additional costs really at that point, you know, because I was completely reliant for food and housing and, uh, or shelter or transportation. Um, I was completely dependent on the U.S. military for that. Has anyone official seen it? Any of the, the men and women that you were deployed with? Any of those folks glimpse at this yet? My cousin was able to roll through with his wife and young son. He did seem to indicate that I could hold my head high, you know, with, with what I've done. And that felt felt good. I think uh, we've had lots and lots of servicemen and women come through and, and all seem to be just very much praising the, you know, the installation and, and the message that it's, that it's sending to them. You know, I, I don't by any means feel like it's, um, nor was it ever intended to be a, you know, kind of a pro-military or a tribute. You know, I, I feel like it's far more critical than that, but I hope that we've been able to be respectful and, and fair while, while we've been critical in the, in the presentation of this work and, you know, that we've been able to properly compartmentalize the, you know, the targeting of, of, you know, of those things too. So I don't know. I think that ever since Vietnam, I kind of feel like we're that society that almost represents like a, you know, a close family that has Thanksgiving every year. And, uh, that one year back then, you know, we had this really touchy conversation that, that blew up about, let's say, politics, or maybe it was religion or whatever. Maybe it was war. Um, but we know that we can't have that conversation again as a family when we just tiptoe around it. And to a certain extent, I sort of feel like that is, you know, that's a microcosm for what we have been as a, as a nation where it comes to war uh, and our soldiers uh, in a post-Vietnam uh, environment. And, and I think we don't want to ever go back to that place where we would so vehemently take out our aggression and our frustration exclusively on our on our soldiers and that that we found new avenues for our frustrations in our elected representatives and uh and our military on the whole rather than the individual i wonder if, if it isn't you know a good time to have these conversations while we have an entire another uh, additional generation of or two of soldiers coming back from these wars, wars that have, I think, a lot of striking similarities to Vietnam. And, um, you know, at the same time, we still have a lot of problems to deal with. There are 22 servicemen and women committing suicide in this country every single day as a result of these wars and as a result of their, their time in and the way that those things have changed them and their inability to, 
you know, to cope with, um, I think the gray areas of, of a normal society. And, and that's totally unnecessary. And when you think about that in the aggregate in one year, it's more than these wars combined killed in action. Um, and that's happening every single year. I appreciate all the time that you've given me. And I want to be respectful of the fact that it's quite late. But I don't know if there's anything that I didn't ask you that you want to say about this project. I think I would just add that our prize, in my experience, in the two years uh, that I did it before in 2010 and 2011 with work out of Detroit and, and uh, Sudan, respectively, was kind of an eye-opening experience. And uh, it was the first time, I think, that I've ever shown my work in an environment where I felt uh, both exhausted by the process, but fully fulfilled in, in it as well. And um, I think that's kind of the magic of the event is that you have an entire cross-section of society that's fully represented, that's exposed to your work, as opposed to other ways that I've shown work at colleges and universities and their galleries or museums and uh, community centers and things like that. I just feel like there are places where people just go to see art and you're kind of always connecting with a certain crowd that does that often and mm -hmm. not really connecting with anyone else. And right. so to have that debate across uh, virtually every strata of society um, and, and I'm kind of um I'm definitely a person that likes to kind of likes to shake things up. And I remember my cousin seeing one of my earlier art prize entries and basically saying, you know, we're going to be going to Afghanistan. You ought to come with us and smack people in the face with that reality. And it's like, <laughs> you know, for me, that's, um, that's exactly what I want to do at the same time. You know, the work is what it is. You know, I had the access I had and, but, but I do think um, people are getting a taste of something that they don't usually get a chance to see um, anywhere else. And that's it's fun to uh, know that 400,000 people or more are coming through Grand Rapids in these 19 days. And uh, some of them, a lot of them, will be talking about this issue because we've had an opportunity to you know, to, to have that um, take place. So it's it's fun. Do you have another project in mind? I, I still think in my lifetime, the most important stories will happen right here at home. And uh, from from the standpoint of uh, our economic landscape, our political landscape, I think looking at the way that the middle class is just really being strained, I, I think there's, there's very interesting stories to be told here. I, I kind of think we need to do another WPA project and basically just... Um, canvas the country. And I'd like to almost do that by perhaps maybe following some of the men and women, as many as I can reach out to that were, were in this unit and, um, you know, just see where they're at today and go visit them, but shoot along the way and, and, um, you know, and focus in on some key issues. Uh, if, if also if Detroit was kind of a, a, a bust community, uh, if you will, uh, and bust by by greed um, all around, and I think uh, it'd be interesting to see a boom community uh, like uh, some of the fracking communities. And so I have spent a little bit of time recently in the Eagle Ford Shale down in South Texas. I'd like to see the Back and Shale um, up in in North Dakota and, and um, 
in Wyoming and, and get a sense of, you know, how we do boom and, um, take a look at the human impact there and, and, um, take a look at some of the people that are being priced out of their local economy. Uh, so there's a lot of, lot to do, a lot of ideas. Um, and we just got to get back on track financially and, and put some solid infrastructure back underneath us with the distribution of this project. And that should enable us to do it. And if people want to get involved, um, there, there will be some people who will hear this who won't be able to get to Grand Rapids during Art Prize, but if they want to get a copy of the publications that you put out based on this project, what is the best way for them to go about doing that? Uh, just send us an email um, at, on my website, which is my full name.com. It's ryanspencerreed.com, and we'll probably get that you know up as an offering. People can just click a button and order um, by hopefully by the end of our prize kind of want it to be an art prize exclusive thing for right now and just sell direct and have those conversations one-on-one and get a, give it a flavor for what people are seeing and feeling about the work. And then uh, we'll transition into the bigger distribution stage after that. So yeah, just send an email and and we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. And say hello to your wife, Erica. I appreciate that she's been supportive as you um, have a, mega interview here unscheduled <laughs> so thanks thanks a lot thank you for sharing your time and and also for being interested in the work it's great thanks again ryan for sharing your story during a really hectic time i hope this goes well for you uh, it's very exciting to see a fellow journalist in top contention for art prizes top awards that's really awesome high five to you And I think it's also great that Ryan has successfully raised awareness for just what it's like to be a U.S. soldier. And that's a really important thing. So a lot of times I think a lot of us go about our business when wars are going on and we're not really sacrificing much. We're we're just doing our thing, complaining about not having good Wi-Fi, maybe the cable's out or we stub our toe. And we have it really good over here, folks. And, you know, if you're a member of the armed forces, I'd like to thank you for your service. Uh, Know that we appreciate it. Ryan talked about the statistics out there that there are a lot of people who come back and they're hurting. So if you have the occasion to give a hug to a service member, please do that. It's important. They need to know that we care for them. They they had our backs overseas. We need to have their backs here at home. Do what you can to uh, help returning service members know that they have our support and respect. All right. And I want to take a moment here to thank my Patreon sponsors for helping me keep this little podcast going. I really appreciate it. And I also want to thank the folks at ACS Home and Work. You can head over to acshomeandwork.com to order tea towels and other home goods. And I've been so busy podcasting this week that I have not rolled out my tea towel contest yet. So I'm so sorry, folks. I'm really planning to do that. Uh, I need to get down to my studio and and pull some prints so I can put those up on the website. But I want to just thank all of you who tune in and listen. And I'm already trying to mastermind a plan for next year's art prize. I think I might try to clear my schedule for three weeks and just podcasts like crazy during that time. Um, I have to figure out how to finance that. But it's really prime time for me. I want to know everybody's story. And I have to figure out a way to to set myself up to do that. So if you want to drive my kids to school during that three-week period, let me know. (laughs) Well, this was a long one, so I'm going to let you go. I'll be back already on Sunday with another podcast. If you're local and registered, a registered Art Prize voter, don't forget to vote. October 9th is the cutoff. October 10th is the big announcement. So cast your vote if you haven't already and check back here Sunday for another podcast in the meantime craft sanity my friends it works for me thank you for listening to this episode of the craft sanity podcast 
To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Thank you.